Amen. Do you have your Bible this morning? Good. You need to go to Galatians chapter 4. And I, I say this every week. If you don't have a Bible with you, you need to grab one from the pew rack right in front of you. Uh, especially this week, it's going to be important. We are going to be kind of uh, all over the Old Testament as we prepare to really dive into Galatians chapter 4. So, like, get a Bible from the pew rack, open your phone up, get your Bible app open. You're going to need it today. We need it every day, but especially today. As you follow along as we study God's word together. Last week in Galatians, we saw Paul continue to express his bewilderment that the Galatians were turning away from the one true gospel towards something that isn't a gospel at all. And in the process of doing that, they are also turning away from him. But that isn't his main concern. The reason why he writes with the tone that he writes is not because the people are turning away from him, but rather he is concerned for their souls if they turn away from the one true gospel. He reminded the Galatian believers of how they received him when he first came to them, that despite having every reason to reject him, they welcomed him and they listened to him as if he were an angel or as if he were Jesus himself. In fact, they were willing, he says, at one point, to pluck out their eyes, if it were possible, and give them to him. But once the Judaizers came, something changed. Something changed in the Galatian believers. Paul's message remained the same, but now instead of receiving him as a dear and trusted friend, they are rejecting him as an enemy. He later went on to contrast his ministry with the ministry of the Judaizers. He said the Judaizers want the Galatians for their own sake, to pad their resume, to make the people dependent on them. But Paul wants the Galatians for Christ's sake, that Jesus would get glory, that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be formed in them. His motivation is entirely different from their motivation. And his practice of ministry, entirely different from their practice of ministry. Two applications last week we talked about. Number one, I encouraged you to remember what it was like when the gospel first came to you. To go back to that day, maybe, maybe you go back to that day this morning and you remember the day of your baptism. Maybe you remember the day you stood before the church and professed your faith. Maybe you remember the day that you met Jesus, you called your name and you followed him. And remember that day, remember how sweet the gospel was to you then, so that you will be guarded against the distractions of the present time. Like sometimes we, we say, let's go back and remember that day so that we'll remember how far we've come. I encourage you last week to go back and remember that day so that you will be guarded against the present distractions. The temptations to walk away that are in your life today will fade away when you remember what it was like when grace first came to you. When you first got a taste of the goodness of God. I also told you, that we should make it our aim to see Christ formed in the people to whom we minister. Not to build ourselves up, not to build a kingdom for ourselves or a following for ourselves, but to see Christ formed in the people to whom we minister. And we approach this by sharing the truth, always the truth, even when the truth is hard to hear. We share the word of God with the people of God to see Christ formed in them. We want that to be the aim of our ministry. Well, this week, as we move on in chapter 4, starting in verse 21, we come to a very interesting part of Galatians. Tim Keller says these verses are explosive. John Stott says many people regard this as the most difficult passage in the epistle to the Galatians. 
So this is not an easy section we're diving into. Verses 21 to 31 of chapter 4 are not easy. And to continue his argument in defense of the one true gospel, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and his argument against the false gospel of the Judaizers, that you can somehow be justified by your works of the law, that's what they were teaching. In order to make this argument, Paul goes back to a classic and foundational Old Testament story. I wonder if you have ever had an experience like I've had where you're, you're at a gathering, uh, maybe dinner with a bunch of friends, and, and one of your friends starts telling a story, and in the process of telling that story, they refer to people that you are completely unfamiliar with by first name, like you should know who they're talking about. Have you experienced that? Where they're like, yeah, and then Uncle Larry, just like he always does, he said this, and, and you're thinking, I've never met Uncle Larry I don't know how Uncle Larry normally responds. Or, or Aunt Susie, oh, you know, how, you know how she always does. She said this or did that, and she always responds this way. And you're like, no, 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 I don't know Aunt Susie either. I don't know the people that you are talking about with such familiarity. My fear is that if I just moved on in Galatians chapter 4 and, and, just, and just taught it without going back and, and doing some of that, you might feel like that today. Because what Paul is going to do is he's going to reach back into a story about Abraham Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, Ishmael. And he's able to do it because he assumes a certain level of familiarity with that story from his people. And, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to set the bar low in here, but I want to be very careful that I'm not assuming your familiarity with that story. I want to go ahead and make you familiar with that story. Okay, So a lot of what we're going to do today is not in Galatians chapter 4. A lot of what we're going to do today is in the middle part of Genesis. Like, we want to walk through that story and see the things, be familiar with the characters, be familiar with the events that Paul is going to use in Galatians chapter 4 to make his point about the new covenant, about the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, okay? So, I told some guys that I prayed with earlier this morning that this is not going to be terribly exciting today. Um, and, and you will definitely want to come back next week. Like, a lot of what we're doing today is laying foundation for next week. And if you just get the foundation and you don't come back next week, you're going to miss the punchline of the whole thing. Okay? So we're going to do the foundation work today, and next week we will dive in to Galatians chapter 4. But what I want to do before we go back to Genesis is I want to read the passage in Galatians chapter 4 so that you understand a little bit of where Paul is going, and then we'll go back and we will, we will, trace, we will trace the narrative in Genesis. And before we do any of that, I want to make application number one today. Application number one today is that we must be people of the book. We must be a people of the whole book. I think we are familiar with the story of Jesus. We are familiar with the gospel message. My fear is that we are not familiar with the biblical narrative, that we are not familiar with the whole book. And I say this with a special burden for Baptists. I'm a Baptist. I'm glad to be a Baptist. I'm proud to be a Baptist in many ways. And Baptists have a great heritage of being people of the book. We talk about inerrancy. We talk about infallibility. We talk about the sufficiency of the scriptures. And we talk and we talk and we talk about how important the book is. And in our personal private lives, we act like it's not important at all. And too often from Baptist pulpits, it is not mentioned at all. It is not preached at all. And so I'm, I want us to really be people of the book. 
not just people who have a good talk about being people of the book, but really be people of the book. And so application number one is read it, some of it, every day, all of it, over time. Read the book. It's a great book. It's a powerful book. It's a life-changing book. Read it, some of it, every day, all of it, over time. Study it. Don't just read it, study it. Slowly and systematically study it. And if you're a part of the regular uh, gathering of First Baptist Church, you'll be a part of that kind of study. We will study it closely in here. As we gather together in settings like this, you will study it closely in small group Bible studies, Sunday school. You'll study it closely. If you come on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, we will study the book. You study the book on your own personal, private, devotional time. Read it, study it, and love it. We have been given a gift, folks. The fact that God has spoken it all is a miracle. The fact that he has spoken and superintended the transmission of that word over thousands of years and delivered it to us, that is a gift. The fact that we have such unprecedented access to the word of God is a gift. You realize that there are brothers and sisters of ours who have very little access to the word of God. Very little, maybe no access to the Word of God in the language that their heart speaks. And yet we sit in a room like this, and we've got every translation you could ever imagine. We've got all kinds of study guides and materials. We've got all kinds of resources. We've got copies of Bible in, 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 on the shelves at our house and in, a, in the phones in our pockets. We've got Bible, Bible everywhere. What an offense it must be to our brothers and sisters who have no access to it, that we have access to it and don't avail ourselves of it that we have access to it and are ignorant of it. So let's be people of the book. That's application number one. And in an effort to be a person of the book, let's read the book together. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. This is what God's word says. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But... The Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Read verse 1 of chapter 5, too. It says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning. We admit our our need for you 
We admit that we cannot see. We are blind. And we cannot hear. We are deaf. We admit that we are ignorant of your word and undisciplined in our engagement of it. So we pray for your help. That you would give us eyes and ears. That you would make us see and make us hear today. We pray that you would give us hunger for your word and discipline to engage it regularly. Trust what your word says. Jesus was tempted. He said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We want to treat your word like daily bread for our regular sustenance, our survival even. Father, we pray that you forgive us when we treat it like cake that is only served at special occasions. Help us as we study today, as we think through big story of your grace, your mercy. In Christ's name we pray. All right, so you saw in Galatians chapter 4 all of this reference to this, this Old Testament story, right? You saw the free woman and the slave. You saw Hagar and you saw Sarah and you saw reference to Ishmael and you saw reference to Isaac and you saw all of these different things that are going on in the Old Testament and you may have been thinking, what, what is that? What are the details of that story? And I want us to go back and look at the details of that story. So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. This is going to be kind of a march through Genesis. At least the middle portion of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. In your Bible or the Bible from the pew rack, Genesis is the very first book, so right at the front. Chapter 12. In chapter 12, we're going to see that God makes some promises. Makes some promises to a guy named Abram. Who we will see later has his name changed to Abraham. He's the guy that we're talking about in Galatians chapter 4. And this is the beginning, really, of God's engagement with him. And he makes some promises. God makes some promises to Abram, namely that he will make his name great, that he will give him land, and that he will give him descendants. And as we look at these promises, I want you to see that all of these promises that God is making to Abraham are not to stop with Abraham. God is making these promises to Abraham and to his descendants. These promises, this covenant that God is making with him will be passed down to his children and his grandchildren and on and on and on. It's never just about Abraham. It's about the people around Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, listen to this. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. Now, Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Maybe, maybe if, if you're curious about this, as we read some of these texts, you should circle every time that's mentioned how old Abram is. 
how old Abraham is when, when these things happen. That's an interesting way to kind of track this. How old is he here? 75 years old, right? Not exactly a spring chicken, but God calls him out and says, listen, I'm, I'm going to take you from the place you're at to the place that I'll show you. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless all the world through you. Those are some fantastic promises. Genesis 12, God makes promises, name, land, descendants. Flip to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, what you will see is that Abraham is distraught. God made promises, but he hasn't delivered those promises. And God reassures Abram of his promise to give him a son. God reminds Abram of the other promises he's made, the other covenant promises. And then later in chapter 15, he cuts the covenant with him. It's this interesting scene where he tells Abraham to cut a bunch of animals up and God passes through while Abraham is asleep. We're not going to look at that today, but it's an important part of the story. Look at Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is to be my heir. You catch what's going on there? He's distraught. God has made promises to him, promises that were to be carried on through his descendants, but he doesn't have a descendant. And so he's upset. God, but all of these promises and all this blessing is going to be passed on to a slave in my house. Eliezer of Damascus is going, to, is going to receive all this because you haven't given me a son. And he's upset about this. Read on in verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Verse 6 is huge, huge when it comes to the gospel. It says, then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abram is distraught, and God reassures him. Abraham says, but, but one, of my dis one of my servants will be the heir, and not a son. You haven't given me a son. And he says, I'm going to give you a son. From your own body, I'm going to give you a son. And that scene when he takes him outside and says, look, look up there at the stars, count them if you can. I love that part. Because the Bible teaches us that God has not only numbered them, he's named the stars. He says, count them if you can. You can't. I named them. And so shall your descendants be, God says. And Abraham believed in God then. Believed in him, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That line has been a central, central truth in Galatians. That we are justified by faith, not by works. That Abraham was justified by faith, and there it is in the narrative. Chapter 15, Abraham is distraught. God reassures him of his promise to give him a son. God reminds Abram of the other covenant promises, and God cuts the covenant with Abram. Look at chapter 16. Chapter 16 is a little bit of a downer. Because Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands and Ishmael is born and tensions rise immediately. 
So instead of being patient and waiting for God to deliver his promise, they got ahead of themselves, they took things into their own hands, and they produced a scheme where Abraham could have a son, not with Sarah, but with a slave girl named Hagar, and he does have a son, and his name is Ishmael. Read it in chapter 16, Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, that's Sarah before her name was changed, Abram's wife, that's Abraham, before his name was changed. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife took Sarai. Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. I want to stop there and tell you what that means. That means Sarah has this big idea. Abram, Abraham, you take Hagar and get her pregnant, and that's how we'll get the child. And then when it happens, she's upset about it. It was her idea, and when it comes to fruition, Sarah is upset about it and begins to despise Hagar. Verse 5, And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she, when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. So the animosity is going both ways here. Neither of them like the other. There's tension immediately at the prospect of this child, Ishmael. Verse 6, But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now, if you read on, the next, the next part of the story is really interesting, um, but it doesn't really have a lot to do with Galatians chapter 4. I'd encourage you to read it on your own time. What I want you to see in Genesis 16 is that Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands. Rather than waiting on God to fulfill his promise, they take matters into their own hands, and Ishmael is conceived. And tensions begin to rise immediately in that house. At the presence of Ishmael, tensions begin to arise. Now go to chapter 17. Actually, actually, stay in chapter 16 and go to verse 15. I told you this deal about the numbers, the, the age of him. Chapter 16, verse 15 says, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. 86 years old. He was 75 when the whole thing started. By the time he's 86, he's concocted his own plan to create a son by the flesh. He's born. Look at chapter 17. In chapter 17, Abraham and Sarah are given new names. They're given a new sign of this covenant. And a promise is given to them of a son through Sarah. Like specifically, not just a son from Abraham's flesh, but a son through Sarah. That promise is specifically made. Abraham, in light of this, expresses his desire for his descendants to be named through Ishmael. He really likes Ishmael. He loves Ishmael. And he says to the Lord, Lord, isn't Ishmael good enough? And God says, no. I'm going to give you a son through a promise, not through the flesh. And I will name your descendants through Isaac and not Ishmael. Read it in chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now when Abraham was 99 years old, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. 
Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. For I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Skip down to verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come forth from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? 100 years old? And Sarai, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and for his descendants after him. Catch what's going on there? God says, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. And what's Abraham's reaction? Huh, yeah, right. I'm 99 years old, 100 years old. She's 90 years old. This is not going to happen. Just use Ishmael. And what's God say? No, no, Isaac, Isaac's the one. He's the son of the promise. What I want you to see here and what Paul is going to want us to see is that Ishmael is a son of the flesh. Ishmael is what we can accomplish on our own. Isaac is what only God can accomplish. He is the son of the promise. And God says, no, 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 it is going to happen through Isaac. Skip to chapter 18. Did you already know all of this? I hope so. I hope this is like, Yawn, snore, boring, I already know it. Let's get to Galatians 4. Genesis 18. Here, God makes a specific promise that Isaac will arrive within a year. And Sarah laughs at this. Genesis 18, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd, took a tender and choice calf, and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, There, in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. 
Verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I've become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid. And he said, no, you did laugh. (laughs) That's like my favorite part of the whole thing. Uh, There's a lot of good stuff there. But but when she's like, no, I didn't laugh. And God says, yeah, you did. (laughs) Don't lie to me. I saw you laughing in the tent. So you catch the picture here? They're old. Sarah and Abraham, they're all admitting it. We're too old for this. This can't happen. And what does God say? Is anything impossible for the Lord? This time next year, you'll have a son because only God can do that. Anybody can take Hagar and produce a child, but only God can produce a child from a guy who's 100 and a lady who's 90. Only God can do that, and he will, and he does. Look at chapter 21. Chapter 21, Isaac is born, and it is a miracle, an absolute miracle. Isaac is born. Tensions rise. Already tension between these two women. Now there's going to be even more tension because we've got the son of the promise living in the same tent with the son of the flesh. It's going to be tension severe. And Hagar and Ishmael are going to be cast out. You need to remember that part of the story because that's a big part of the story that Paul is going to play on in Galatians chapter 4. That Hagar and Ishmael are cast out. They're not allowed to stay. They are put away. Look at Genesis 21, start in verse 1. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Isaac, or whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old, circle it, 100 years old when Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said that Abraham, to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. It's probably about three years. He's probably about three years old when this happened. That would have, been, would have been the custom. Three years old, he's weaned. Look at verse 9. It's extremely important. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking. Paul is going to really key in on that in Galatians chapter 4 and say that, that Ishmael, the son of the flesh, sees Isaac, the son of the promise, and mocks him and causes trouble for him. Uh, some, some scholars even talk about that perhaps he shot some arrows at him. There's some Jewish literature that, that seems to indicate that maybe at, at some point they, they were playing, and in their playing, Ishmael's trying to shoot an arrow through Isaac. Yikes. Therefore, she said to Abraham, this is verse 10, drive out this maid and her son, for the, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son but he did it. That's the rest of the chapter. But he did it. He cast them out. Do you catch how this story goes? Familiar with this story? I'll give it to you by the numbers, by his ages. At 75, this is is the way Warren Wearsby tracks it. 
At 75, Abraham is called by God to go to Canaan, and God promises many descendants to him. At 85, the promised son has not yet arrived. Ten years go by, and he doesn't have the promised son, and Sarah becomes impatient. 86, Hagar gets pregnant, and Sarah gets jealous. At 99, God speaks to Abraham and promises again that he will have a son by Sarah and says to call him Isaac. At 100, the son is born, and they name him Isaac as commanded by God. And at 103, it was customary for the Jews to wean their children and to make a great occasion of it. And there, there is tension between Ishmael and Isaac. What I want you to get from this, for the sake of our study in Galatians chapter 4, is that Abraham had two sons from two wives. Abraham had two sons from two wives. One was of the flesh, a son of the flesh. Through Hagar, his name is Ishmael. The other is the son of the promise. Through Sarah, his name is Isaac. Son of the flesh, through Hagar, Ishmael. Son of the promise, through Sarah, Isaac. This is man's concoction, man's effort. This is something we can do on our own. This is something only God can do. 100-year-old dude, 90-year-old wife, have a baby. Only God can do that, right? And he did it. And Paul is going to use this story to show the Galatians and the Judaizers, who would have been more familiar with the story than the Galatian people, that there is a way to be connected to Abraham, even to be a son of Abraham, that does not does not connect you to the covenant promises. There is a way to be connected to Abraham, to even be a son of Abraham, that does not connect you to the covenant promises. He is essentially going to say that the Judaizers and those who follow what they teach are Ishmael's and not Isaac's. So that's the point he's going to make. And that might not fall on our ears like heavy or provocative, but in the first century, to people who have any clue about Judaism, for him to look at the most Jewish people around, the Judaizers, and say, you are not like Isaac, you are like Ishmael. They would have wanted to kill him. They would have absolutely wanted to kill him. It was greatly provocative, and yet that's the point he's going to make, that there is a way to be connected to Abraham that does not connect you to the covenant promises. He's going to show that the way to be connected to Abraham and to the covenant promises that flow through him is not by flesh, but by faith. If you want to really be connected to Abraham in a way that you experience the covenant promises, it's not by tracing your lineage to him in the flesh or acting like him in the flesh. It's being connected to him by faith, having the same kind of faith that he has. The promises do not come by flesh. They come by faith. Like Isaac, the benefits of the covenant cannot be produced by our own striving but they come by trusting the God who does the impossible. Go back to Galatians chapter 4. With all of that Old Testament narrative in your mind, read through this one more time with me. Paul says to the Galatians, with the Judaizers listening on, tell me, you who want to be under the law, 
Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the woman, by the free woman, according to the promise. This is allegorically speaking, we'll talk about that next week. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But as at that time... He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. Two applications today. Number one, let's be people of the book. Talked about this already. Let's be people of the book who are familiar with the stories who are familiar with the, the, the meta-narrative, the overall story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. Let's be familiar with the book. Not just in word. Let's not just be people of the book who, who will argue and fight about inerrancy and infallibility and sufficiency. Let's be people who actually live like the Bible is inerrant, infallible, and sufficient. Let's be people who read and study and love the Bible like it's inerrant and infallible and sufficient for us. Not just in word, but indeed, let's be people of the book. And second application, I'm going to steal from Cooper from Wednesday night. God intervenes in the most hopeless and helpless situations in order to display his glory and grace. Right? That's basically what you said. He he intervenes in the most hopeless and helpless situations in order to display his glory and grace. He did it with Abraham and Sarah and this boy that is born when she's 90 years old and he's 100, Isaac. He does it in conversion like we saw with Emerson. Hopeless, helpless situation. Lost and undone and separated from God because of her sin. Deserving only of wrath and judgment for all of eternity. And yet he reaches down into that hopeless and helpless situation and changes things. For his own glory, as a display of his grace, so that nobody walks away. Do not say to Emerson, good job, Emerson, way to go, Emerson, we're proud of you, Emerson. Emerson didn't do anything, she got rescued. Way to go, Jesus. You did something great there. This is not a celebration of her, it's a celebration of him. He rescues people who are hopeless and helpless, why? So that he'll get all the glory. You don't climb your way up to him. He swoops in and rescues you by his grace. A holy God forgives sinners because of the cross. And in that way, God intervenes in the most hopeless situation, helpless situation, in order to display his glory and his grace. And listen, he can do that with you. Like if you're thinking, I'm hopeless and I'm helpless. Yes, you are. That's right. Maybe you would say, I'm too old. No, you're not too old. Maybe you'd say, I'm too dirty. No, you're not too dirty. You're not hopeless. Because of Christ, 
He can reach down and he can rescue you. Matthew 19 is such an interesting scene. Jesus is talking about rich people getting saved. And in Jewish thought, uh, rich people were most likely to be saved, most likely to experience God's blessing. In fact, their richness was interpreted as a blessing. And Jesus turns that logic on its head and he says, oh, it's hard for a rich man to get saved. You could put a camel through the eye of a needle before a rich man gets in the kingdom of God. And the disciples are amazed by this. And they say this in chapter 19, verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, then who can be saved? If the rich man can't be saved, who possibly could be saved? And Jesus' answer is, with people, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Can Sarah have a baby? No. But with God, all things are possible. Can Emerson be saved? No. But with God, all things are possible. Could you possibly be reconciled to a holy God in all of your sin? No. But with Jesus, it's possible. He intervenes in the most helpless, hopeless situations in order to display his glory and grace that is primarily seen in the conversion of sinners, the salvation of sinners, but it is also seen in our daily walk with him. And I hope you've experienced something of this recently, that you have faced or are facing a hopeless situation. God shows up and does something that only he can do. And he does it not for you, not for your sake primarily. He does it so that his grace will be on display, so that his glory will be on display, so that everyone will look around and say, those people couldn't have fixed that. Only God could fix that. Those people couldn't have done that. Only God can do that. I'm thinking here of Exodus chapter 14. When the children of Israel have finally been delivered from Egypt, they are escaping from Egypt. God has brought them out by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. And then the armies of Egypt come after them, and they're caught between the sea and the army. Remember this? It's hopeless. It's helpless. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. This doesn't, God showing up like this doesn't just happen at our conversion. It happens in our daily walk with him. He will show up and fight for you. Could Moses take credit for the parting of the sea? Could the children of Israel take credit for that? No, God did it that way so that everyone would know that God did it. Because he intervenes in hopeless, helpless situations to display his glory and his grace, not yours. I pray that you get to see some of that. I pray that I get to see some of that. Part the waters, Lord. Fight for me while I keep silent. Let's stand together and pray. Father, I pray that you will um, instill in us a hunger for your word and a discipline to engage it regularly. That we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That Christ would be formed in us as we engage your word, your living, active, inspired, inerrant, sufficient word. Forgive us when we talk a good talk about the Bible, but we do not read it. And God, I'm so thankful for the way you intervene in helpless, hopeless situations in order to display your glory and your grace. Thank you for how we've seen that in Emerson's life. We pray that we will see that in others, even this morning, that you will reach down into the helplessness, into the dirt, into the desperation, and you will rescue for the sake of your own name. And we pray that we will see that as we walk with you. Father, there are people in this room who stand between the army and the sea. 
And there is nothing they can do. We call on you to intervene for the glory of your own name so that everyone who watches what unfolds will say what a mighty God you are. Pray that you will part the sea and rescue your people. In Christ's name we pray.